0: Welcome to the CKNW Weekend Morning Show podcast. I'm Sterling Fox, and today, medical historian Dan Mellick wants those drastic new alcohol guidelines to receive a much closer look. Policy analyst. Aaron Woodrick says if you want cheaper cell phone bills then allow foreign competitors into our marketplace. Columnist Tasha Carradine looks at a potential fistfight between Ottawa and Quebec City over the notwithstanding clause and digital media professor Vas Bednar thinks Canadians could benefit from the US inquiry currently underway into the Taylor Swift Ticketmaster fiasco. So let's get started. The new Health Canada funded guidelines, which were released by the Canadian Centre on Substance Use and Addiction this week, recommend revising safe drinking limits, arguing that beyond one to two drinks a week, you are increasingly at risk of a range of condition, including heart disease, stroke and cancer. But before you throw out your wine collection... Let's try some perspective. This is part of the opening uh, of a, a great little article in the Globe and Mail written by our next guest. The title of the article, Canada's Drastic New Alcohol Guidelines Demand a Closer Look. The author of said piece, Professor Dan Malek from the Department of Health Sciences at Brock University in Ontario. Professor Malek is a medical historian who specializes in drug and alcohol regulation and policy. Professor Malek, Dan, good morning, sir, and Welcome. Good morning, happy to be here, thank you. Well, it's good to have you with us. This, uh, this comes from the University of Victoria, the Canadian Centre on Substance Abuse and Addiction. Uh, and you argue basically that the samples and the guidelines were based on studies that uh, they say 6,000 studies, but diving into the, the nuts and bolts of it all, you discovered that, well, in, in fact, there's quite a limited number of studies that were used in the modeling.
1: Yeah, so, yeah, they do say they, they started with about 6,000 studies done over the last several uh, years. And the, uh, the whole point was to, quote, update the guidelines yeah. from from uh, 2011, I think, <clears throat> which you remember were 10 to 15 drinks a week. Um, uh, and, uh, yeah, so, so when you look at how they, they, they used a fairly sophisticated and complex way of sorting out which articles, which uh, reviews, and w- which studies would, would be in their uh, data, w- in their evidence. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, I mean, it's really kind of hard to understand, but also hard to, um, like, there were a, a lot of co- uh, judgment calls on what goes in. And, and they talk a lot about high quality, but um, there's some questions about how to assess quality. And the type of studies they look at tended to um, not consider some of the broader um ways that people use alcohol and the the sometimes positive place that alcohol can can have in someone's life that the, the role that can play in someone's life so so along with really narrowing um the research it uses um but also always saying we started with 6000 which is which I think feels to me like they're trying to make it sound like it was 6000 studies said this but they didn't right. um there's also some interpretations that are Questionable.
0: You talk about uh, the fact that uh, the name of this outfit, the CCSA, the Canadian Centre for Substance Abuse and uh, Use and yeah. Addiction, is actually they're harm-focused. Uh, yeah. They they talk about substance use and addiction, but you say the focus is on the negative side of use. This organization exists to yeah. look for harm in the name of health, and through yeah. that lens, there's no opportunity for any benefits. My doctor years ago, Dan recommended a glass of wine a day is probably really good for your blood so do enjoy in moderation i have followed his advice religiously ever since and that's a benefit it was explained to me as a benefit
1: yeah yeah yes uh, so when i when i say this the ccsa is harm focused it doesn't mean that they're just they're just uh trying to distort data intentionally what right. it means is you know there's that saying when your only tool is a hammer all problems look like nails and their tool is harm like their view is harm and and so they look for harm so talking about the benefits of alcohol um they're more skeptical about any of that research than they would be about harm research right like finding harms and um, you're right your do- many doctors have said this there's evidence that Red wine, for example, um, increases what they call the viscosity of blood and stuff like that. And there's a lot of debate around that, and Mm -hmm. that's fine. That's what research does. It it sort of advances and clarifies debate. But to ignore stuff that's um, a benefit, or not ignore, but marginalize, minimize, and and basically try to uh, exclude um, uh, evidence of benefits, because you're focused on finding harm is I think really
0: problematic. And there's also a cultural dimension to this whole conversation Professor Malik that was and again not ignored necessarily but just uh, avoided in in this report and the the recommendations. Uh, Alcohol for better or worse is very culturally integral to what the the way we do things. Uh, Imagine a wedding without a toast to the bride and groom.
1: Yeah. Yeah yeah exactly and that's another thing that people really um we ha- we we have this weird sort of cognitive dissonance like like holding two contrary ideas in our minds about alcohol at the same time especially in north america where it's considered a problem with and, and people some people do really have problems with it so i'm not denying that it's considered a problem we focus on like alcoholism and drunk driving and those things which are you know, ex- uh, examples of some of the problems sure. that can come from alcohol. But then at the same time, we bring a bottle of wine to a party, we toast people at weddings. If we're really stressed out, we might have a drink just to relax, or we take a friend out for a drink to sort of, you know, if something bad or good is happening in their life. Mm-hmm. So it, it is part of that as well. And it's not just because there's like a symbolic meaning of alcohol, like we could, try, uh, you know, replace it with grape juice. It's, because even just a little bit of alcohol that can kind of relax you a bit. For some people, that really helps. It really helps them kind of quote take the edge off, right? right? And and on top of that, um, it's also a form of socialization. So again, or it's part of our socialization. So again, the wedding is an example, or taking friends out for for a drink. Where <clears throat> excuse me, um, like uh, a researcher recently in Simon Fraser University did a great piece on in the conversation. Uh, he's a researcher on social connectedness and the tremendous health benefits of social of having a good social network, having mm-hmm. ha- having connection, right? And this is this is reach, research that roots back to, a, uh, interestingly, about the same time the last guidelines were made, right? Um, which uh, says in very compelling ways that. Um, having good social connections is more protective of your health even than quitting smoking. And I'm not saying people shouldn't quit smoking, right. but that we know how beneficial that can be. Imagine something that's even more beneficial. And alcohol can play a role in that. And that is Absolutely not in the calculation of the CCS.
0: And this is not to in any way downplay the the findings that there a consumption of alcohol can lead to an increased risk of developing certain types of cancer and other uh, physical ailments. Uh, that's not. It's not saying oh no no that that's wrong. That it, it's simply I think uh, and uh, from what I took from your article in the Globe and Mail was basically that's that may entirely be true and it does represent a risk to responsible drinkers however uh, uh two drinks a week is uh you refer to them as 19th century temperance movements and oh, yeah. that sort of recommendation
1: yeah it really is it, i mean this it, is my view I, as a historian of alcohol i've looked at temperance i've looked at policies that encourage moderation for over a century well, I haven't been doing it for over a century, but it's stretched back over a century. And um, yeah, and that's the same sort of thing. And some of the rhetoric is also very temperance-oriented. So in their recommendation, they say eight drinks or more, what's the word they use, radically increases your um, risk of these illnesses. Right. But that radic- I mean, I don't know what radical increase to you means, but in their evidence, when they're talking about things like stroke and um, heart, uh, heart disease, which actually are Per, the, up to seven drinks a week is, is protective, like you actually have a lower risk than a non-drinker mm. um, in their data. Um, the next number they have is 14 drinks a week, and it increases your risk by 4%. Now, I don't know, <laughs> about you, but I don't consider a 4% risk radical. Right. Um, and the other issue of risk, I mean, I, I'm not going to deny that cancer is a horrible thing, and uh, I hope nobody ever gets it, but people do get it. But when you're talking about risk, in the way they talk about it they do have some tables that show years of life lost if you drink which is kind of a complicated thing to understand because it's not years it's months and days Mm -hmm. but um when they talk about like your risk of, of of um what's the language they use the increased risk of disease and injuries um they're using a what's called relative risk so it's relative to um uh, a non-drinker. They don't actually show what the risk is for a non-drinker to contract these diseases, just saying relative. So if you say 100% increase in your risk of getting, say, liver cancer or sort of liver cirrhosis, for example, right. okay, at three drinks a week, um, that's compared to someone who doesn't drink, right? So of course, alcohol really is a hit on your liver um, in excess. Uh, so it's it's really distorting that kind of risk. Um, so So even saying that there is a risk of cancer doesn't kind of frame it as how much of a risk, and is it really the kind of risk that you're, like, Like, do we, do we remove everything in our life that has risk? We just basically would stay at home, which actually just staying at home alone is also a hit to your health.
0: Well, no kidding. And, and uh, about that human connectivity thing that yeah, you were talking exactly. about earlier, boy, the pandemic sure taught us a big lesson about the yeah. need to uh, coexist physically yeah. with yeah, other yeah. people. Dan Malik, I'm afraid I'm out of time, sir, and I'm okay. grateful for yours. It's a terrific article. I'm commending thank it to you. my listeners right now. Canada's drastic new alcohol guidelines demand a closer look. It's in the Globe and Mail just a few days ago. Google it. It's a terrific read. Dan Malik, thank Thank you for this. Uh, glad to have found you, sir. Love the opportunity to speak to you again. My pleasure, anytime. Here's a headline in the National Post that stopped me cold. Want cheaper cell phone bills? Allow more foreign investment in telecoms, remove the protectionist straitjacket from Canada's telecom market, and bring global competition to bear. The author of the piece, a good friend of this program since his days with the Taxpayers Federation, is Aaron Woodrick, now the Domestic Policy Program Director over at the McDonald laurier Institute. Aaron, good morning and welcome back. Good morning, Sterling. Always a pleasure. Good to have you with us. Now, this whole business of—you now, also go on in the article to talk about uh, the fact that the Federal Court of Appeal this week rejected an appeal by the competition commissioner to decide the fate of the proposed merger of telecom giants Rogers and Shaw. So this morning, Aaron, what's the status of that merger?
2: Yeah, this has been obviously dragging on for several years. Um, you know, we already have a very small telecoms market, only a few players. So this, this proposed merger raised a lot of eyebrows. Um, you know, the Competition Bureau didn't want to allow it. The Competition Tribunal, which is a judicial body, they have permitted it. So really all it needs now, uh, Sterling, is sign off from the minister. And it looks like that's probably going to be forthcoming. So we are going to have even less competition uh, very soon in cell phones in Canada than, than, than we do right now.
0: And the competition straight, Jack. Aaron, you you need to just take a moment Mm -hmm. and remind Canadians, Vancouver and BC listeners, about the fact that our telecom sector, we pay among the highest cell phone rates on planet Earth. And one of the reasons for that is we have actual laws forbidding foreigners from playing in our cell, uh, cell phone sector.
3: That's right.
2: I mean, look, the reality is uh, Canada is a relatively small country, and if we want to have more robust competition like we see in Europe, like we see in the States, uh, where they have a lot lower prices, not just for cell phones, but things like everything from airlines to banking to dairy products, um, we have to allow more competition. And so we can't have it both ways. You know, there are people who say, well, you know, we don't want to have foreigners owning our, our cell phone companies. All right, well, if that's the case, then get used to terrible customer service and very high prices because there's absolutely no incentive for any of them to to do better
0: so if uh, it would it i suppose it would would probably make it fall over uh, but what there exists a remote possibility that the minister Philippe francois champagne could indeed sign off on this merger and add a caveat but okay we're going to let this go forward but we're also simultaneously going to allow more competition into the marketplace he could do that couldn't he
2: he absolutely could. And I think the government, I mean, right now, the problem, and it's even acknowledged from people like former uh, federal finance minister Bill Morneau, we have a, we have a productivity problem in this country. We, mm. You know, companies are growing, but they're not getting more efficient. They're not generating more. They're not creating more jobs. Um, and part of that is because of a lack of competition. You know, competition is ruthless, it forces companies uh, to do better because if they don't, they cease to exist. And there's no substitute for that. And we've had, you know, for a long time in this country, people scr- stumbling around trying to say, well, how can we get more? competition when the answer is obvious. It's allow foreign competition in here. It doesn't mean um, we can't have any rules or regulations, but just get get rid of this sort of blanket rule on things like ownership. And in many, many sectors, it would really benefit a lot of Canadians and especially Canadian consumers.
0: Now, this is a protectionist thing. This goes back almost as far back as Canadian content regulations in film and television and music era. And we're back in the 1970s with this mindset that really, especially in telecom sector, hasn't changed one iota. Sure,
2: and look, there's a, there's been a backlash against uh, certain aspects of globalization and free trade, and that's totally understandable because a lot of people um, paid a heavy price for that. But you know, right now, things, for example, like telecoms, the real reason, the only reason to restrict it is if you have um, you know unfriendly uh, states like China that are trying to interfere or perhaps spy on you using that telecom. So as long as you restrict those players, you know, for example, there's no reason we couldn't allow uh, European and American cell phone uh, players into our marketplace. There's no threat to Canada there. Right. There's only a threat to, to Bell, Tellus, and Rogers. And the point I make to people is, you know, they're very comfy and cozy right now because they don't have to worry about the competition. And the only way to shake it up is to open the doors and, and let them face some, some real competitors.
0: So why do we have in this country, Aaron, such a, a, such a situation in which governments seem to be so cozy and comfortable with monopolies? They, I suppose they're easier to regulate simply because there are fewer businesses Business enterprises to keep an eye on, but there really is a comfort zone surrounding governments and their penchant for monopolies.
2: Sure. Well, one reason I would say, Sterling, and I've, from all my decade in Ottawa, I've witnessed this up front. I mean, any, any entity that has a lot to lose spends a lot of money um, lobbying and speaking to the government. Sure. So if you are a company that stands to lose a, a great deal by more competition or a change in the rules, you're going to spend a lot of money to keep whispering in the government's ear not to do that. And warn them, oh, we could lose jobs. It could co-, you know, cause a political problem for you. Whereas for Canadians, you know, the millions of us who are losing stuff, we don't have that lobbyist. We don't have some one at the table making that case. So that is, in the short in the short of it, is the explanation for why often governments seem to favor the big guys rather than the rest of us.
0: Well, and there's also a fear factor, and this government specializes in fear factors and exploiting uh, the anxieties and, and the fear of Canadians and have been quite successful in the past few years particularly. But again, going back to the 1970s, we were absolutely mm-hmm. convinced by the government of the day that the reason we needed to throw up these protective barriers around us would be otherwise we will simply be overwhelmed by our next door neighbors the americans and the europeans and we desperately need to develop our own uh, identity as if we couldn't do that uh, with a competition going competition in fact makes us a little keener and and when you had a hit movie or a hit song back in those days and tried to distribute it especially in the united states this is number one oh, in man. canada they would go well so yeah. what it's the law you have to play that stuff we're not impressed
2: well, yeah, and you've seen it in the cultural sector now with platforms like YouTube where people can go directly to a global audience. Right. Canadians are doing great. Yes. Canadians are, are world-beating. And this is what drives me nuts is, you know, Canadians uh, are, so, are so scared about not succeeding in the world stage. But when we actually get out there and compete, we do very well. So that's the thing I'd say to the government is, I think Canada is a confident country. I think we should be ambitious. We shouldn't be scared and worried about other countries coming here to eat our lunch. We should be looking at where we can go and eat in their lunch. And that's just not the attitude we see not just in government, but but a lot of the business sector in this country, you know, and and the telecoms is a perfect example. They've been protected. You've got these big giants. Why aren't they operating in other countries? If Rogers and Bell and Telus are so good at what they do and so efficient, why aren't they going to other markets where they're allowed and uh, and dominating there? And the answer is because they can't compete there, and and, and I think that says a lot about um, the shape that they're in.
0: And you're right to point out uh, the Huawei situation where, of course, Canada was very, very late to the party, but eventually ended up Uh, Banning Huawei, as has been done by other countries, notably America, and again with obvious security concerns, dominate. But that's rare, and that's, that's, that's an exception rather than the rule, isn't it?
2: absolutely and that's a security issue not an economics right. issue right and and uh, and you know who the players are there i mean there's only a handful of them china russia iran these are states that are hostile to us they are not our friends um they they uh, their governments intervene with their with their companies these are not really private companies, right? These are essentially companies that are arms of these states. And that's where we should definitely draw the line. But if you're talking about our, our trading partners that we trust, Europe, Canada, uh, United States, Australia, Japan, these are countries where we can trust uh, them as good business partners, and we should allow their companies to do business here on equal footing.
0: Now, you've been around the block a few times, and as you said, in Ottawa for the past decade, there is a, there is a sentiment, there is a, a, a sort of a resentment growing in the country that, uh, you know, we're heading to an election next year at the very late, Uh, And, you know, it's about cost of living. It's about kitchen table issues, about trying to just keep your head above water and excessively high cell phone bills. It doesn't add. It's not the same as a grocery tab on a monthly basis, but it could be a lot less. Could it also become an election issue?
2: I think so. I mean, not on its own, but things with, like, airline prices we've seen, right, people have had, there's just a number of frustrations that are growing, and look, I I think it's unfair to blame, uh, you know, any one government for all the problems, but on the other hand, when government's try and shrug it off and say, oh, well, it's just a few people grumbling, when a lot of people, I mean, I saw that interview that uh, the Prime Minister gave, and he sort of blamed uh, people, you know, being uh, wistful for a time when white men ruled, and I thought, can you imagine, you can't pay your grocery bill or your cell phone bill, you can't find a house to live in, you're working read about safety in public transit and then you open up the newspaper and the prime minister is saying something like that i mean you just have to shake your head
0: all right aaron good to have you back on the show always fun uh friends that's in the national post worth a google search the uh, title of the article want cheaper telephone bills allow more foreign investment in telecoms the answer is plain as a nose on your face aaron woodrick always a pleasure thanks for this thanks a lot sir Here's a quote from uh, an article I saw the other day, quote, Canadian constitutional disputes like zombies. Just when you think they're buried, they rise from the dead looking to claim their next victim. Politicians often exhume them to boost boost their standing and win an election. But they'd better beware. Like most monsters, the undead have no loyalty and will happily turn on those who resurrect them. This under uh, Tasha Carradine's latest national post column, Toiliev goes after disaffected Quebec liberals fed up with Trudeau. Tasha Carradine on the line from Cottage Country and snowy Kawartha area north of Toronto. Tasha, good morning. Thanks for joining us again.
3: Good
0: morning. Nice to be here. So this is uh, the the, the invocation of the notwithstanding clause. For some reason, uh, when Doug Ford decided to do it in Ontario to resolve uh, uh, an issue, uh, the government of Canada uh, decided it was not on. And yet when the government of Quebec does it, as routinely as it does, Ottawa looks the other way. So uh, square that circle as it turns uh, to the Conservatives and their take on the notwithstanding clause.
3: Well, yes and no, because Justin Trudeau actually came out last weekend and um, said to a French uh, publication, La Presse, that the preemptive use uh, by both provinces was cause for concern and said further than that, that there might be action taken by his justice minister, David Lamedi, um, to take uh, make a reference to the Supreme Court on the issue. That's the furthest he's gone in terms of saying an actual action that could be taken. And this, of course, provoked a lot of outrage in Quebec. Premier Legault piled on and said, you know, we're never going to accept this weakening of our rights. Never. And this is not a coincidence, because at the same time, the same week, the Conservatives, Pierre Polyev were making this sort of charm offensive in Quebec, going there uh, on the ground, meeting with people There's a a real realization Quebec is always a key to a majority in an election, Um, and that's why neither party got one last time, too, because not just Ontario, it's Quebec. So to go after him and try and rile the separatist boogeyman again um, is clever on Trudeau's part because he wants to polarize the vote between federalists and separatists and squeeze the, the Conservatives out, have people vote for the block instead. But I don't know if it's gonna work this time, and that's what I started talking about. Mm,
0: from start. uh, uh, yet from a perspective, from a Western perspective where we're not very close to any of this, uh, what we are uh, quite accustomed to, and this goes back to Brian Mulroney who was really good at it, uh, Canadian pr- politicians at the federal level having one message for Quebec and a completely different message about the same topic for the rest of the country. That's not necessarily the case here, But there was a bit of feedback or uh, pushback from Alberta on the matter of the notwithstanding clause this time around, wasn't there?
3: Yeah, I think that it's interesting that Alberta is taking, um, you know, Daniel Smith's path to victory in her leadership was this Alberta Sovereignty Act, the idea that she would move forward with something to defend the rights of uh, Albertans. And uh, that is, you know, the use of the notwithstanding clause by Alberta uh, wouldn't be a first for Western Canada. In fact, the notwithstanding clause, I think, was first used by Manitoba on legislation to get nurses back to work, like mm. way, way back in the day. So using the notwithstanding clause out West would not be unique. But the idea that, you know, we're going to use it to defend the rights of Albertans and just preemptively block laws from Ottawa is a bit of a declaration of war, I will say. Um, and it, it. You know, it raises the idea, well, what's the Constitution for? And I think that's also partly informing why Trudeau is getting so engaged.
0: So and if uh, do you foresee then before the next election, which is less than 18 months away, at least officially, some kind of approach to the Supreme Court for some kind of ruling on this or is this just all talk?
3: Well, that's the question, is when's the election going to be? Would there be time for a ruling? Because the Supreme Court, you know, doesn't just do it overnight. Sure. you need at least several, uh, usually about six months to do something like that. Um, and the other question is why would that happen at this time? I think it really depends on where the liberals see the polls going in Quebec. Because like I said, the, the Bloc Québécois the Croix has become kind of a parking lot for votes, for voters in Quebec who don't love the liberals, don't love the conservatives, you know, love their province, but not enough to leave. And they sort of see it as like, oh, well, it's just, you know, we'll just vote these guys in, they'll defend our interests, no, no harm, no foul. Right. Um, so you have to give, the, to get those voters to move, you got to give them a reason. And if Trudeau thinks he can't give them enough of a reason, but maybe Pierre Poilievre would give them a reason – well, then he'll say, "Uh uh-oh, i got to keep them with the Bloc. Better there than with the Conservatives. So if he raises the specter of sovereignty, of of, um, rather a federalist separatist sort of divide, if he raises the specter of Ottawa interfering by making a reference to the Supreme Court, that will solidify the Bloc vote. And to the detriment, mostly of the Tories, who traditionally have been the ones who've tried to poach it. So, I think it's a lot of political gamesmanship. It'll depend what things are in the polls and what Trudeau thinks is a smart move to either win Quebec or just, Keep it parked with the
0: block. And so this weekend, uh, they're wrapping up their caucus meetings, both the Liberals and Conservatives, uh, prior to the resumption of Parliament s- soon. Uh, and, of course, yeah. both leaders, Polyev and Trudeau, hurling spears at each other. Uh, what mm-hmm. do you think is going to happen in this uh, this winter session that's coming up? Is it going to be as volatile as I think Trudeau wants?
4: It's going to be ugly.
3: I have No question. I think both of them want it to be ugly. And this is the problem with politics right now. It's become rage farming on both sides. Yeah. And, you know, there's, the Trudeau government has done a great deal of harm to this country, 100 percent with its policies, its reckless spending. There's no question. Um, at the same time, some of the stuff that conservatives are talking about or what they based basing their range farming in, I think, is destructive as well. Um, it's, it's almost become a culture war. And, you know, you look at the United States and you see what's happening there. I really don't wish our politics could to go down that road. So I'd love it if both of them would be a bit more civil. But I'm not holding my breath right
0: now. Yeah, final question. It's good to have you back. Uh, This is uh, the first anniversary. It was one year ago today. Uh, The truckers invaded Ottawa and upset everyone in that uh, bucolic national capital. Uh, They're still, of course, outraged and still whining. Uh, Expecting anything today? The police certainly are for a change.
3: Yeah, um, I don't know if I expect uh, the same. I mean, I don't expect the same kind of, obviously, what happened last time. Um, There was talk of redoing it in Winnipeg. That didn't happen either. Um, You know, there there could be some people who who commemorate the event, uh, such as it is. Um, I know certain people I know who live in Ottawa are glad it's not going to happen again because they really did suffer under it. Um, You know, one woman I know was shoved to the ground because she was wearing a mask. Another was told to go home you packy, literally, that was the insult thrown at her by someone because she was wearing a mask and she happens to be of Indian background. Mm. Um, you know, there's, there's two sides to the story. Sure. And for all the, the glory that people said, the trucker convoy, a lot of people in it felt unified and they found solidarity. A lot of other people felt very threatened. So there, you know, it, it, I'm glad it's not going to be repeated because I think it was a very bad watershed for this country, actually, in terms of the way feelings were expressed. I think there's legitimate grievances underlying a lot of it. But the way they were expressed was very destructive.
0: Indeed. I'm not expecting very much today at all. I think the press will make more of it than there actually is going to happen, as is the press's particular. I was
3: going to say, there's not that much going on.
0: (laughs) So. (laughs) So let's make something out of nothing. Tasha, thanks for this. Always a treat to have you on the show.
3: Thank you so much.
0: The story that has uh, dominated the concert-going public for the last uh, several weeks has been this fiasco with Ticketmaster, and it was all about the Taylor Swift concert series. She was going to do a series of shows across the United States, big tour, and uh, you know, for for the first time in a few years, everybody wants to go to concerts again, so naturally, a few million fans decided, I want a ticket, and well, it, it just sort of blew up, and now there are hearings in the United States diving into the whys and the wherefores because millions of individuals were affected to the point where politicians couldn't help but notice. Our next guest uh, thinks that these hearings that are underway in the United States on the Taylor Swift ticket fiasco could benefit... Canadian customers. Let's dive into this one and welcome Vas Bednar. Uh, Professor Bednar is the Digital Society Program Director at McMaster University in Hamilton, Ontario. Joining us from Montreal this morning, Professor Bednar. Vass. good morning and welcome.
4: Good morning. How are you?
0: I'm terrific, thanks. And I'm curious as all get out about how Canadians are going to benefit from this blow up uh, on the Taylor Swift Live Nation Ticketmaster stuff.
4: Well, I'm hoping we'll benefit in two ways. One is just the spillover effect of having Ticketmaster as part of a a broader conversation uh, in terms of looking at their business practices and considering their market power. Uh And then the second would be, depending on the outcome of these hearings, if there are any material changes to how the company is structured or how it operates, that will have spillover effects for fans in Canada as well. So that's an added bonus.
0: Indeed. So I did a pretty poor job of describing the um, the the problem that led to the current hearings. Can you do the elevator sketch of what went wrong and why so many people got so upset?
4: Well, people have been upset with Ticketmaster for quite a while and artists have been speaking out over time, but it really sort of blew up Um, some are saying with Swifties, Taylor Swift fans, who were, uh, you know, a bunch of things happened that really annoyed them. One, they were locked out of pre-sales, even if they were quote-unquote verified fans. The public sale to her uh, concert series was canceled. There were glitches. There were tickets appearing for resale with prices as high as $22,000 USD. And, you know, because Ticketmaster also uses this kind of like demand-driven algorithmic pricing, it makes it really hard for fans who want to save, you know, money and for, for a concert ticket when you don't really know how, how much that ticket's going to be. So it's kind of a bundling of all these concurrent issues, high fees, long waits, website failures, mm-hmm. and people are sort of saying that, you know, Ticketmaster's dominant market position means that the company just doesn't have any pressure to actually innovate and improve.
0: And that's you know the common complaint around this part of the world is that you know when anybody announces a concert uh, and and you know tickets go on sale at ten o'clock Monday morning. Well, at ten by ten o five on Monday morning, they're sold out, and in fact, they've been mostly bought by bots uh, rather than human beings.
4: Yeah, resale bots. That's definitely definitely an aspect. And look. Demand is certainly a factor here in the, t- in the case of Taylor Swift. Ticketmaster has said that demand for our Swift tickets could have filled 900 stadiums, but I don't think we should blame Taylor Swift or Taylor Swift fans here, and you're absolutely right. The proportion of tickets that end up being set aside for Ticketmaster's own resale economy, where mm. they kind of earn double on a ticket, means that even more fans are locked out. But it's not just fans who are losing, right? Artists are losing, too, um, and they can't, can't really negotiate with uh, a different ticket vendor or access certain size venues for their concerts. And back to all those junk fees you see when you buy a ticket, mm-hmm. and this could be for a sporting game too. I mean, those fees are not going to the artist. They're going straight to Ticketmaster's pocket. So I'm I'm very appreciative that artists of all stages of their career, so not just Taylor Swift mm-hmm, are sure. more comfortable pointing to these problems now because typically they might also fear retribution, right? If they don't have another choice to go to go on tour.
0: That's right, and, and uh, we're, we're hearing from. Uh some of the uh, people who are uh, most upset about this—that uh, uh, it's it's so impossible to buy tickets at whatever the face value is—they've sort of given up. Vass, and that's you know that's the exact opposite of what touring performers want to have happen. And Ticketmaster, uh, uh, at this hearing, apologized with incredible insincerity to everyone involved, and and then sort of shut up and let the senators ask more questions. Uh, really, you get the impression they're sort of going through the motions because they've been called up on the carpet, but they really don't care much.
4: That That is the impression a lot of people got online. But, you know, there's a growing movement in the U.S. to break up Ticketmaster. So they merged with a live events company called Live Nation mm-hmm. in 2010. Mm-hmm. And many people are saying that This is, you know, a core source of the market power. We now see them exerting and exploiting. So I don't think they're totally off the hook just because the Senate hearings are over. And again, back to those junk fees and dynamic pricing and markups, we might have other policy instruments that can better empower and protect consumers from that kind of exploitation and hopefully help artists out a little bit more too. I mean, we know that touring is one of the number one ways that artists can actually earn a decent remuneration for their talents. They're certainly not earning that much on YouTube or Spotify, that's for sure. you know, from the digitization of music. And that's a whole other competition problem. But super important to talk about this intersection of culture and competition.
0: Indeed. So again, back to the point that you made in the paper the other day, how can Canadian customers ultimately benefit from all of this?
4: Well, we can start to look at these same issues, you know, here in our backyard. We can also, if we really want to take that lens of how power artists being exploited by these kind of choke points or, or gatekeepers there are other interventions we could consider. One is there's a campaign called My Merch, which is all about the merch kind of uh, charge, surcharge that artists face. So across businesses of all sizes, a small local bar, you know, a big stadium, when you buy a concert tee to support, again, your favorite band, Mm and you make that splurge. I think there's a presumption, I certainly had it, that that, you know, the profit, the markup, is going to that artist that I support and admire. Yeah, Um, But artists face a sort of skimming percentage that can be as high as 35%. And again, it's very difficult for them to negotiate against this. It's sort of become this ubiquitous business practice. It kind of emerged out of nowhere. It's, it's It was informal but became formal, if that makes sense. Why don't we cap those fees? Why don't we make them, you know, modest, but also, again, better protect artists? And if the U.S. does, you know, impose anything on Ticketmaster, That benefits us, too. So in a way, they're doing their homework for us. But there are tons of issues we can look at, again, at that intersection of culture and competition. And we can be leaders, too. Canada, you know, really cares about protecting Canadian culture and promoting it. So that could be the lens that we bring to this conversation.
0: Interesting stuff. Fast Bednar, thanks very much for doing this with us this morning. It put a little clarity on certainly a very emotional issue for these past few weeks. Thanks a lot.
4: My pleasure. Hopefully I'll see you at the concert. Bye. (laughs) That would
0: be a challenge, but yes, okay. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or listen to us live, 6 to 9, weekend mornings. I'm Sterling Fox. Have a great week.